As if you couldn't tell from the pure exposition of its lyrics, you're listening to the theme song from The Wild Angels. Released in July of 1966, this Roger Corman production went on to open the Venice Film Festival that fall. Its sensational subject matter, sex, drugs, bikers, and rock and roll, is a far cry from contemporary summer movies that are predicated on spectacle and sensation. But, as you'll discover on this week's episode, The Wild Angels was one of many possible options that summer. As our panel of critics reveal, theatrical offerings were very different 50 years ago. New releases were held over for weeks or months in certain cities, freely commingling with suggestively marketed international fare, American B-movies, and anything-goes double and triple bills of repertory films. Here's our conversation, which explores what was playing in Cincinnati, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and New York City. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor, and today I'm joined by... Jim Hoberman, geezer in residence. <laughs> you, you write stuff too, though. Uh, yes, I write, I write stuff about uh, mainly old movies for the New York Times and for uh, other places. Okay. They're not all old movies. <laughs> Ina Archer. I'm the outgoing co-chair of the Women's Film Preservation Fund from New York Women in Film and Television, and now a moving image archiving and preservation student at um, NYU, and write for, for the magazine, happily. Uh, Nick Pinkerton, a uh, peripatetic freelancer. Well, thank you all for coming. So today, we're going to sort of flashback, and we're going to go to the summer of 1966. Not for any political reasons, just because... 1966, in general, is considered one of the greatest years for new releases. But as anyone who knows anything about how films were actually seen back then, it, there were a lot of, you know, things were held over for months, sometimes years. There was a lot of rep stuff going on, Art House International. So today we're going to be looking at sort of like a fantasy slate of films that you could see in the summer of 1966 in a couple of different cities around the U.S., and then for those who were alive during that time, talking about what they actually did see and what that experience was like and just the general phenomenon as years have gone on of like how summer movies, just the concept of summer movies, because like this, this sort of grotesque uh, release schedule now where it's like February is the worst month for movies and then uh, summer is just a glut of blockbusters and then prestige stuff is held hostage until the very last month of the year when they jam them all in theaters and hope uh, for Oscar gold. So maybe we could start there. <laughs> well, conventionally, Jaws is, is blamed for this as for many other things. But actually, there are precursors to it, although because Jaws became the most profitable movie of all time in record uh, amount of time, it changed history. But there were movies that were... Uh, released in the summer, they tended to be uh, uh, genre films, horror films. I mean, the real precursor is actually Them, which came out in, I think, June of 1955. Also had saturation booking and was advertised on the radio and, and, and so on. But, you know, from when I was a kid, I remember that's when the horror movies came out, yeah. Yeah. as I recall. There's a hell of a triple feature in Chicago of the week of June 10th, where it's The Skull by Freddie Francis, Red Line 7000 by Howard Hawks, <laughs> and then Dr. Tara's House of Horrors also by Freddie Francis. Which is <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like amazing. I think, you know, the question of drive-ins is actually sort of interesting because we live in this time now where it's like, oh, sort of this myth of availability where it's like, oh yeah, you can stream anything you want. Except for you really can't. There are a lot of holes. Um, I guess, could we talk a little bit about venues? Um, and either of lived experience or just sort of what you guys were researching and found? As I recall, there was only one drive-in in, uh, in New York City. And that was, I believe it was called the Whitestone Drive-In. It was mm -hmm. kind of under the bridge or close to the bridge in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that was, that was the, the only one that I knew for many years. And so the drive-in movies that the rest of the country got, you would have to go really to 42nd Street to see. And that gives me a segue into what I think is like the great summer movie of 1966, The Wild Angels, mm -hmm. which 
opened on 42nd Street. I don't know what the uh, it was probably booked with a um, you know an Edgar Allan Poe film, another, another Corman film. But it it was a tremendous scandal because at the end of the summer it was announced that this movie, which you know was for the time fairly outrageous, and even now, I mean, it does end with an orgy in a in a church, <laughs> and you know, and and had you know the the degenerate offspring of two big stars, you know, Peter Fonda and, and Nancy Sinatra, you know, playing these hedonistic uh, lunatics. It was picked to open the Venice Film Festival. And I don't know what genius came up with this, but it was like a fantastic idea, and it actually drove Americans crazy to the degree they were aware of it. So the movie was notorious. I, re I remember being aware of it, but I wouldn't have known where to see it. I mean, it actually didn't open, you know, in neighborhood theaters till probably sometime in 1967. For people who haven't seen the film, can you sort of walk them through it? Well, it's, the, it's, the, it's sort of the first of the neo-biker films, you know, a second generation after uh, The Wild One, The Wild Angels, you know, inspired by The Hell's Angels. I think they actually got a credit for research or authenticity or something <laughs> like that. And Peter Fonda is the lead, Blue, his name is, he's the leader of the gang, and Nancy Sinatra is his mom, and they... You know, they basically go crazy driving around. I mean, they one of the one of the guys is in an accident. I think they like take him out of the hospital and stuff. And there, there's a lot of uh, dope in it. Mm -hmm. That's the main. They're, they're smoking a lot of pot. And this was what made the that and their callous attitude towards the uh, the straight world is what made <laughs> the movie so uh, incendiary, as I recall. I know. I don't really have a venue memory, although I know that that drive-in, because I lived in New Rochelle, so we would pass it, but I didn't really go there until the 70s. We went to see, I think, Rock, 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 or something they were doing, you know, um, revival kinds of things. But um, I was uh, maybe four in 1966 and lived on an air base in Panama. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I, I by picking Washington, D.C. as my film place, I was hoping to replicate someplace that had a military base because I think that the films came in there and I'm, and I'm wondering how they actually programmed or chose them, although I think that they were, you know, maybe a year or two late. But so the titles are, some of the titles that were listed are familiar, um, but not necessarily what the content of the, of the films were unless it was later, you know, later on. Mm -hmm. But I remember distinctly I saw listed here a number of times uh, a big hand for the little lady, um, which I finally saw. But uh, I remember, remember the title distinctly from being in Panama. The movie theater on the an Albrook Air Base was near the um, near w where I think my brother's high school was, and we went. My mother was picking up my brother, or some kind of thing, and s I saw this title, but didn't really see the poster. She got out of the car, and I was sitting there in terror, thinking about this idea of this movie about a woman with a giant monster hand. And I was terrified. And it was just, I couldn't even turn around. I didn't want to go near it. And my mother came back. We drove home. And I was just petrified about going near the movie theater. And probably 30 years later, I was looking in the TV guide, and I saw it listed. And I said, oh, Mom, look, you know, this movie, a Big Hand for the Little Lady. You know, I was afraid of that movie in Panama. And she said, oh, why were you afraid of it? And I got kind of choked up. And I was like, well, I was embarrassed, but I thought it was a little old lady. And she said, with a big giant hand. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of looked in. And I was really then just like the tears just came down. <laughs> so, of course, by the time I actually saw the movie, it's a kind of a romp with uh, Joanna Woodward and uh, Henry Fonda, or is it Henry Fonda? It's a kind of a, you know, gambling and not espionage, but, you know, trickery and that kind of Western 60s comedy. It's just simple ideas. Yes. Simple <laughs> ideas are the best ideas. Yeah, maybe we could just go through and talk about, you know, the fantasy slate. So would you like to kick off? Okay, so say, say I'm a young man, Cincinnati, Ohio, 1966, working the line, mm -hmm. getting off work at Ivorydale. I've been stamping bars of soap all day. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at the listings in the Cincinnati Enquirer, 
And what I found is, and this is, I think, applicable to our conversation about Big Hand for the Little Lady, is the idea of 1966 in film as handed down to us, uh, for those of us who didn't experience it firsthand, is very different than what you would actually potentially uh, you know, be able to see which would be, I mean, 1966, our idea of 1966 is, you know, maybe a dozen or so masterpieces. The actual fact of it is, you know, perhaps a re-release of the Ten Commandments, Mm -hmm. perhaps, uh, you know, the Cincinnati Kid would be hanging around as it was in the Queen City of the West. (laughs) Perhaps they'd be trotting out the guns of Navarone again to see if they could uh, squeeze a few more bucks out of that. (laughs) Perhaps you could see Doris Day in the glass bottom boat. So, which is not to say that you couldn't put together a very interesting slate of films out of what was available to you, but it's not as though it was a movable feast exactly. No. It's a very like cold down idea of what, you know, what was available that we have. And we think, oh gosh, what, what wonderful times. I mean, what's interesting to me is the almost, at least in southwestern Ohio, the almost complete absence of any foreign films except those that could be sold as kind of risque or naughty. Among them, Agnes Varda's Le Bonheur, which seemed to have a very uh, successful run at the Esquire. I saw that. Going over the list, that was one of the films I realized, oh, I saw that <laughs> that summer. Yeah, so. there, are, there are a couple theaters in Cincinnati. The Guild, which was uh, the owned by an impresario called Willis Vance, and another called The Esquire, which is still open and where I saw a pop star never stop, never stopping uh, <laughs> only last week that sort of specialized in risque art films, which would invariably be advertised with you know, a tagline like a film for adults <laughs> or <laughs> a mature. Mm-hmm. Yes. Things like this. Yes. I went over that list and it was, I wouldn't say it was a stroll down memory lane, but it was interesting to see what I could possibly have seen them because that was a, that was a very big summer for me because that was the summer between uh, high school and, uh, and college. And it also was a very long summer because I graduated from high school sometime in June, but I didn't start college until October because the State University of New York, or at least the part that I was going to, was on trimesters. Mm -hmm. So I spent a a lot of time and um, went to a lot of movies. And I realized there were were the movies that I saw in Queens, where I lived, and then the movies that I saw in the city, where I have to go in. So the boner, amazingly enough, was playing in Queens. I did see that. At a, at a Queens <laughs> theater, and I remember being completely amazed by the ending. I mean, completely. Con- I haven't seen it since, mm. but you know, just just taken aback by this French sophistication. And um, looking at the list, I realized that that a lot of the movies that I saw. And first of all, Mademoiselle, the Tony Richardson film. Mm. You know, that's oh. what huge. Fa- I think it's John Waters' favorite film. It ends up on all of his lists. I saw that. That was, I thought that was pretty intense. I, I remember that. But I realized that I also saw Morgan. And I think that, strangely enough, and probably because of the Beatles, British films had a cachet at that moment, mm-hmm. you know, that, uh, that was almost equal to, or maybe even greater than the new wave films, which were in sort of perpetual rerun in the, in the, in the rep theater. So I'm not sure where I saw them, but they were not hard to mm-hmm. see. Morgan, I saw in a first-run theater somewhere in somewhere in Midtown. It's interesting. Yeah. I did notice a fair number of UK titles popping up. Monesty Blaze, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Darling, I think is that is that year maybe. Yeah, it was still playing. And around. then speaking of Tony Richardson, uh, yeah. the loved one was still hanging around yes. in Cincinnati <laughs> yeah, yeah, in June, no, I, yeah. possibly because Jonathan Winters is from Dayton. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that also. That was in a commercial in Queens too, in a in a uh, you know somewhat more. What was your local house, or did you there have were three. just one? There were three. I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with the geography. I of live Queens. in Woodside. Ah, well, I live in I lived then in Fresh Meadows, which is mm-hmm. further out, off the Long Island Expressway. And there was a 
big new theater, the Century Meadows, which seemed like the equivalent of the Ziegfeld. It's just, you know, like a fantastic theater. Then there was the Utopia, which was a kind of a second-run theater. And then there was the Mayfair, which was the art, you know, difficult films, art films, and inevitably became a porn house and then began showing Bollywood films. And so that, it's, you know, I, I doubt that it's, uh, it's there anymore. So those were the three neighborhood theaters. With regards to the, like, inevitable slip from art house to uh, Jack Shack, like, one thing that I found <laughs> sort of interesting is you can see not just in the sort of marketing of foreign films... But the fact that, uh, in the Inquirer at least, you have the burlesque houses advertising cheek and jowl with the movie listings, not only the dancers who are coming through town, but also they're playing Radley Metzger films, mm -hmm. they're playing the D-Girls, as it's advertised, which is short for the Dirty Girls. So, I mean, it's very easy to, I suppose, read this retrospectively into it, but one does have a real sense of something just about to break through in terms of the sort of subject matters that are going to be you know widely seen and widely discussed and you see that in you know certainly in the wild angels but also in these you know slightly more risque foreign movies there's a movie a swedish movie called dear john which apparently did gangbusters business <laughs> at, at the esquire there's a definite sense of being right on the brink of something i was surprised to see uh, scorpio rising on the on the list at some point in august uh scorpio rose yeah. <laughs> in, in, but i thought that was really kind of fascinating I'm sure that one of the first movies I was taking to see was The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins, as Lore has it, although I don't recall those two films necessarily. But I do remember going with my mother to see Carry On Cleo, which was, and just remember <laughs> loving it. You know, it was like they had costumes and they were English and they, and that my mother was really chagrined. And I was kind of surprised that there weren't more carry on or those those kinds of movies which i think were all like made a big impression i think later in life came out and anything that had jerry lewis in it so boeing boeing i think would be on my <laughs> list of desirables to see um anything with tony curtis so tony curtis and jerry lewis that was mm -hmm. perfect <laughs> perfection um born free I think, you know, animals would have been appealing yeah. uh, and, and oh, yeah. animal stories. That darn cat. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All these are sort of, yes, these are all very good. That darn cat had not arrived in Cincinnati yet. Oh, we, yeah. we, were Criminal. All, we were on tinterhooks waiting for it to come to the provinces. Well, that's a 65 release too, so even crueler. I think what you mentioned before about the idea of like this English cachet, when you mention a title like, modesty blaze or darling there is sort of this glamour and you're not necessarily thinking of kitchen sink stuff well there was the kitchen sink stuff but then there was the carnaby you know this the swinging mm -hmm. london mm -hmm. stuff but also there were I, I remember there being maybe slightly before this a lot of peter sellers comedies yeah, yeah. i'm all right jack, jack yeah. and um i don't know there were a bunch of them that just played in in they played in queens yeah, I think you're getting sort of the tail end of, as you said, Jim, the sort of sw swinging London thing. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the string is running out on that mm -hmm. through the course of the summer. But the long hair thing hasn't wholly coalesced yeah. or at least hasn't made its way to the screen properly because movies always have a bit of a lag time on them. Yeah. Well, when you first asked me about this, you know, the movie that I, the, the movie that I remember best from the summer of 1966 was uh, Chelsea Girls, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I saw in the basement of the Wurlitzer building, which was this midtown <laughs> skyscraper. It was on 41st Street. And somehow Jonas Mikas had moved his operation there. So Chelsea Girls was, it was just held over, I don't know, for weeks. I mean, it was, you know, that late summer and fall. And I was getting most of my information, I realized, from the Village Voice mm -hmm. at that time. So I went to see Lord Love a Duck totally <laughs> on, on Andrew Saris's recommendation. And uh, um, so that was also around that time. 
And then if we're counting September, it's September still the summer, I, I saw a bunch of things in the New York Film Festival, which I remember very vividly. Uh, some I actually bought tickets for, but a lot of them I had figured out this way from a friend of mine to sneak into the, into the press screenings, which was ridiculously easy. That's, that's no longer an option. Please oh, do not yeah. try that. <laughs> <laughs> as, a, as an employee of the Film Society of Lincoln Center, I must ask you. Yeah. No, but you, you, you said that they were at like the Met Opera House, right? Uh, they were in the uh, Avery Fisher Hall. Oh, okay. Avery Fisher Hall, which, you know, is not a great place to see a movie, as, no. you, as you probably know, but it was enormous. And that has all those, that sort of a confusing glass staircase and stuff. And I, I had a friend who was taking a film uh, making course somewhere with this guy, either, I think his name was Norm Fruchter. Anyway, he was a, he was a um, or Robert McIlver. They, they were they, making sort of socially committed cinema verite documentary kind of things. And they had a film in the festival. And what you would do is they would just show up and you just sort of like would wait for them and then like going to sort of point like I'm with them. Just mm. act like you were with them and, and, and walk in and, and nobody really cared. I mean, it was, you know, it was this enormous hall. You know, so I did see some things like Gary Finney, I remember. Mm-hmm. Pure Lafou, that was like a life changer. But, mm-hmm. uh, and then I paid for a ticket <laughs> for maybe two things. What would, how would you characterize sort of audience reactions it, like, or audience behavior? Because it's like, as someone who's lived in more than one place <laughs> and also traveled a bit, it's interesting always to note codes of audience behavior in New York is one of, I think, has some of the best trained audiences as compared to like, you know, you go out to the suburbs of Detroit and people are checking their phones. Best Maybe trained. they're answering. <laughs> I think, or most uh, regimented. Yeah, and maybe least free would be another way to say yeah, that. It's true. <laughs> how, would you, how would you characterize? No, you disagree? Uh, oh, I, you know, it's hard for me to, I mean, we're talking about in 1966. I mean, I... Like, I what was the, I mean, I, I'm just curious, like, what, what well, was, were people, like, just talking during Chelsea well, Girls? Uh, <laughs> Well, Chelsea Girls was, I mean, the whole experience of it was so unusual. I mean, I had been to that theater before, but I mean, you're basically, it was like the basement. I mean, it was something that they cobbled together. And it was, it wasn't even like a a, a movie theater in in any real sense. I remember the audience there, as with all the underground films, as being, you know, sort of a little strange. A micro cinema. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe and vaguely, I wouldn't say menacing, but, you know, sort of a little intimidating. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I was, uh, you know, they were, I don't remember, you know, uh, any injunction against talking. I mean, probably what I remember is that you could smoke at the movies, mm-hmm. which I think meant something to me at the, at, at the we, time. We've read the article, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, I mean, cigarettes. That, that, Nick is referring it, yeah. to a, <laughs> to, to what, was that was that for the nation? Yeah, uh, but, yeah. You, but they wouldn't print it in the mag. They 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 just had it online. I mean. They chickened out. <laughs> yeah, squares. Yes. Yeah. Still down on heads, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Do you remember growing up on a base and then comparing that to civilian movie-going experiences? And again, I think also what's unique about or potentially unique about seeing a film on an army base is that. It is a, probably a lot more by vir- by virtue of you know who is in the army. I think a lot more diverse crowd mm-hmm. as opposed to like you know if you go again, it's like if you go to a film in a particular neighborhood, you know it's very representative of that neighborhood. My feeling is, and maybe because I was a kid, that the the films were directed at children, <laughs> but right, right. But, or, but there was matinees. I think it was probably more similar to a more old fashioned kind of movie going so I know for my brothers who were 11 years older uh, or so than me you know they were very good about sticking to the codes for going in the the age range Mm -hmm. so you didn't you know sneaking into the movie theater wasn't wasn't an option and I remember when I started to go to movies on my own with my friends after we had gotten to New Rochelle going into the movies was a much different more kind of Policed in a different way, I guess. But you could sort of drop people off at the movie theater and 
come and pick them up later and just stay. And it was a little different because we were on an air base mm -hmm. and sometimes we went over to the army base to see different movies. So this Carry On Cleo movie was over there for some reason. I'm sure the evening movies were probably different. Mm -hmm. And I don't, re I, that's something I'd like to explore more. I don't know how long they circulated necessarily. But I think like everything else on the, on the base that it was very, it was very kind of controlled. Mm -hmm. I remember the whole family going to see the guns of Navarone, speaking of which, <laughs> which, and, uh, and remembering there were giant guns in it. Um, but I'm assuming that there must've been a certain amount of political material that kind of went along with, with what got screened for the adult programs. And I don't remember if Panamanians were actually allowed to use those amenities. Mm -hmm. I know that there were servicemen who came from Mexico and other surrounding areas who had times that they spent in the base area, could go to the pool and use those kinds of facilities. But I don't remember if they were allowed to go into the, to the movie theater. Did I'm assuming yes, but I don't know. Did you ever go to the movies in Panama City? No, I never, I, I, or I don't recall yeah. having done that. I'm curious as to what they would play yeah. there. On television, there was Spanish programming and um, local canal zone and, I guess, children's shows, what was going on in the base, those kinds of things, like a public television, but for the base. So. Put your fantasy. My fantasy? fantasy for <laughs> um, summer of 66 in, if you were in D.C. Well, Black Like Me, The Trouble with Angels, The Loved One, of course, Boing Boing again. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that that would be it. Yeah, I think I would go for that. I was looking at um, actually Cool World in Harlem, and I didn't know if that is that the Cool World or is yeah. that the Sherlock? Yeah. Okay, so that might I think would be really interesting. But and uh, oh, but and definitely Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf kind of cap it all off. But I think things that sort of felt representative for that time. Like I think that my peers really kind of gravitate towards the trouble with angels and these daring young men and their Johnny Jalopies and uh, all of those kinds of sort of nutty movies, um, Casino Royale. I remember those very well, probably from television, but I think they had a lot of influence on us. And I think, you know, those are the underside of the, you know, of Le Bonheur and those other <laughs> more sophisticated fare. Yeah, but. I mean, because um, Ron... Um, <clears throat> Jonathan Rosenbaum wrote this, and I always, I think it's very good to remember, you know, speaking to, why do the French love Jerry Lewis? Why do they, and it's like, he, and he said, the Americans love Jerry Lewis first. Like, these were yeah, huge dude. films. <laughs> like, it's like, it wasn't yeah. like, it wasn't like, he was like some un, un, unseen mystery filmmaker. They were, right. like, these were killing it. And, you know, like the films mm. that you mentioned, the same, very much the same thing. So going through these listings, were there things that sort of surprised you or just you feel like would not necessarily be available now? Or just even in terms of like the theaters that existed. Well, because I know you, Nick, you'd written this really interesting theater history of Cincinnati for us at, in your gone but not forgotten column bombast. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll say this there are certain times when looking at the film listings in Cincinnati, Ohio, I look at this and I say, geez, these are some pretty nice options. Mm -hmm. I'll give one example. Uh, which is June 26th, uh, what is playing around town. Now, in addition to Disney's Lieutenant Robinson Crusoe U.S. Navy, <laughs> which is one of the top grocers of the year, mm. who remembers it now, we have <laughs> Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf being rolled out. We have The Patsy playing at the Ramona, Excellent. a double feature of North by Northwest and Who's Minding the Store oh. at Academy <laughs> Drive-In. <laughs> Major Dundee at the Auto Inn, Redline 7000 at Dent Auto, Family Jewels at Highway 28, that's right, three Jerry Lewis films <laughs> concurrently playing, and at the Imperial Folly Burlesque House, The D-Girls, Radley Metzger's The Dirty Girls, not to mention the Herman's Hermits musical Hold On. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> But one of the stranger British invasion boy band movies made. Yeah. <laughs> right yeah. up there with the yeah. Alan Clark Five or uh, what's this? Oh, the Dave yeah. Clark Dave Five. Dave Clark yeah. Five, yeah. 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 That's John Borman's first films. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah, it is so weird. <laughs> anyway. But to speak to the point you made earlier about the myth of constant availability, well, that is a myth, of course. 
But at the same time, you have a much, much wider swath of material available to you at the click of a button here in the summer of 2016. What, however, you don't have is the delimiting that might force you to go to something you might not otherwise experience. Mm -hmm. So rather than an algorithm saying, if you like this, you might also like this, you could be bored off your ass sitting around in your apartment in Norwood and go, eh, something called Major Dundee's playing at the <laughs> Auto Inn. Let's go see what that's about and maybe have your life changed. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't think for a moment in terms of options, 1966 has anything on 2016. That's an insane thing to state. <laughs> However, the limitations imposed perhaps could open up, you know, new uh, vistas. I don't know. One thing that I was a little surprised about is the ubiquity of Russ Meyer in the mid-60s. That's not surprising. <laughs> because just looking at the listings, I saw Mudhoney playing around town, Faster Pussycat playing around town, I think one uh, Motorcycle, mm -hmm. I believe that's the title. And that's interesting in that Russ Meyer would later run afoul of uh, Charles Keating, one of the uh, upstanding uh, citizens of Cincinnati, when uh, his movie Vixen was playing, I think, at the Guild. Uh, and this would become a uh, prolonged matter for the courts. And Charles Keating, I'll leave you guys to look up what happened to that <laughs> guy. <laughs> Well, he was instrumental in the Flaming Creatures case also, mm -hmm. before he yeah. uh, met his... Um, Citizens for Decent Literature yes. was the organization. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. None of those Russ Meyer films turned up on the New York list that you gave me. Uh, yeah, none of them in Washington either. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I, they were all playing on 42nd Street, which was just terra incognita for the, you know, for the, for the daily newspapers. Things where they would be triple bills that would start at ten in the morning. I mean, I think it was forty-five cents if you if you went that early. You could stay all day. But I do remember being um, there for maybe it was this year. I mean, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill was that nineteen sixty-six? I don't know if the year? initial release was sixty-six, but that's when it came through okay. <laughs> Cincinnati. Because I remember seeing that on a on a Forty-second Street marquee, and I said. They could put that on a marquee. I was I was really <laughs> shocked. I mean, I you know that that could you know they could just have it out there. You know? Well, I will say also I was astounded. I mean, I knew that Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was a big kind of cause celebre. I right. had no idea just how much money that movie made. Yeah. I mean, particularly in a period the mid '60s that's kind of noted for you know, multinational mega productions and, you know, Euro pudding and such like this movie that's essentially a couple people yelling at each other <laughs> in a few different rooms. I mean, that really must have instituted some kind of major shift. Well, it was because it was uh, sort of traditionally the dividing line, or at least according to David Boardwell who will be on the show next week. <laughs> um, and also, obviously, Hollywood sort of responding to the pressures that international film, you know, specifically European art house film, dealing with very explicitly, explicitly with sex and not making any sort of attempt to mask it. <clears throat> yeah, I guess to, to return to what I was saying earlier, you really do feel almost palpably looking through these mm -hmm. listings, that demarcation point and yeah. people sort of towing the line and seeing what they can get away with. Blow Up opened in December of 1966. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, I recall from my, yeah. you know, teenage perspective of, of having been the, uh, the big movie which brought all these things together. You know, explicit sex and swinging London and... Uh, you know, European existential whatever. <laughs> I mean, mimes. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah that was yeah, that's the thing because because it's like that movie has it begins with the animals, like the band, the animals, yeah. and then ends with these mimes. Like yeah. it's like really the full gambit of the uh, yardbirds, the yardbirds, yardbirds. yardbirds yeah, excuse yeah. me, yeah. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> animals would be too garagey, I think, for for Antonioni, but.
I'll, I'll briefly mention that on August 21st, uh, a little band called the Beatles played at Crosley Field oh, in Cincinnati, <laughs> Ohio. Uh, their final U.S. tour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rained out. It was meant to be on the 20th. They played on the 21st instead, where the Red Legs uh, had come in seventh place in the National League <laughs> or would come in seventh place in 1966. That same day, across town, a little movie called The Fat Spy with Phyllis Diller opened. <laughs> yes! <laughs> I was waiting for someone to bring that one up! <laughs> <laughs> Phyllis Diller, a native of Lima, Ohio, which also produced Donald Ritchie. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't contribute anything else beyond that. <laughs> You're going to drop the mic after that. Phyllis Was that before or after she teamed up with Bob Hope? That's a great question. Well, I mean, there's a Phyllis Diller, like, reappraisal. Long <laughs> yeah. overdue. No, she, yeah. she had a great cameo in uh, Splendor in the Grass in the nightclub scene. Like, very brief before, yeah. before uh, Warren Beatty's terrible dad kills himself. New, oh. New Year's 1929. Well. Which is, which, I don't know. Thinking get, of, yeah. get the word doc started, Violet. Yeah. <laughs> Ina, do you have anything to add? you want to add... I guess in terms of then versus now. Um, I guess I was wondering if there is that same opportunity to be able to discover something. I mean, just cost-wise, I think you know it was something you could do that didn't cost too much and go hang out at the movies. And there's plenty of movies playing, but I things being seemingly always available, but would you really have the time or the money to be able to just kind of experiment? And I'm not so willing anymore to do that, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think in the past it was like, yeah, I'll go, I'll check it out. And, and and of course now there's the opportunity to have this kind of fantasy film festival happen pretty readily. And I guess I, one other quick thing, I was sort of curious about what other kinds of films overlapped in the in the different cities. You know, like the group comes up on mine. Uh, no yeah, group no, in Cincinnati. No group. <laughs> we don't have any truck with that feminazi with that stuff. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the women uh, trying to uh, you know, get out of the darn kitchen. Torn curtain. When I looked at this, yeah. I was thinking, you know, why didn't I go to see that? And I'm wondering if that was like a big had opened at, at Radio City or something. I mean, it, you know, it had huge stars. You know, but somehow it was regarding. I had this vague sense that it was it was it was a fiasco. I, you know. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting with so many of these movies that you look at, they can be taken as sort of indicative of their time, but Hitchcock movies never can, like Torn Curtain. (laughs) I mean, aside from the fact that it's like a Cold War movie, it doesn't feel like 1966 in the slightest. It's in the hermetic chamber of, you know, his own own skull. Yeah. Yeah, you have a lot of cases of sort of twilights of the studio gods mm-hmm. going on around this time, like uh, Sons of Katie Elder, Henry Hathaway uh-huh. is making the rounds. Uh, Shan Autumn is in a couple theaters, even though it's well after initial release, still kicking about. And I'm sure there are other instances, but you have a lot of... I wouldn't... I'm. I, don't mean to imply that Hitchcock is running on fumes and torn curtain at all, but maybe a lot of older directors who were associated with the studio period who were running out their careers yeah. a bit. Well, El Dorado was the next year, as yeah. I recall. Which you had to go to 42nd Street to, to see. Another movie that I went to see totally on Andrew Saris's you know, recommendation, you know, reading about it. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting point. A lot of this stuff which has subsequently been elevated, these sort of genre works, which I would assume as somebody who's kind of used the auteurist roadmap and making my way through cinema history, like I would assume, for example, when Anthony Mann's Heroes of Telemark comes out, it would be a big deal as opposed to playing on the bottom half of a double bill at a single drive-in in Cheviot or something like this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a lot of these things, which subsequently have been very elevated, had less than prestigious rollouts. 
yeah. But, <laughs> and also were almost underground in their, in their way. But, you know, Saris was briefly on the radio. He had a show on uh, WBAI, the, the listener-sponsored ah. station for a while. This is maybe a year or two before this. And what he did that impressed me so much was he would take the weekly TV listings and he would just go through it. And he would just be like recommending all these <laughs> movies on television, which is, in, in my experience, that's how the whole auteurist thing got to people anyway at that, at that point. It was from what was being shown on, on television. And then it was like very you know, remarkable to think that, oh, you know, the guy who made Invasion of the Body Snatchers also made uh, Riot in Cell Block uh, 11. This was the same guy, you know, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Aside from like prestige directors, these films weren't marketed as, you know, whatever genre director's name. Like it was just very anonymous. So, yeah, you're, it's an interesting point. Yeah, still at this point in the newspaper spots, there's not a lot of outside of the case of Hitchcock. There's not a lot of beating the drum for directors. It's right. Steve McQueen. Yeah. It's Paul Newman mm -hmm. in Harper or whatever. It's... Uh, uh, Sophia Loren, it, whatever penetration the O-Tourist idea has, it is not making its way to the Cincinnati Enquirer uh, film ads. And certainly no from the producers of. <laughs> from the guys who brought you. Yeah! Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, we need to be a little bit more casual yeah. with this. <laughs> They're from your buddies. The, from the guys who brought you Dr. No <laughs> Thunderball. <laughs> It also seems like there's a little ditch between the kind of message films or sort of, you know, 50s, early 60s. I, I mean, the representation for others, for, for minorities is completely seems absent, at least for Washington. Which is it's, crazy. Yeah. Considering. And, and then, yeah, considering, yeah <laughs> it's sort of, you know, so I don't know if everything starts to happen again in 67 or what, but it's kind of, I thought that was kind of curious that there was, well, I wasn't I, that, I didn't think it's that curious, but. Because, I mean, to be fair, though, the listings that I gave you are just from the newspaper. Right, but, yeah, so oh, okay. they're mm -hmm. probably certainly, you know, screenings at churches and, like, community centers. And, like, mm -hmm. all, you know, this entirely different circuit of viewing options that, you know, we you would have to dig really, really, really deep, deep yeah. <laughs> to, get, to get access <laughs> yeah, to. to find this. Yeah. yeah so. I, w I was seeing practically nothing but Poitiers. Like in terms of yeah, really? other representation, mm -hmm. it's like yeah. Poitier yeah. in a movie. Genre unto himself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, like Duel at Diablo and A Patch yeah. of Blue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Patch of Blue and uh, Lilies of the Field, I yeah. think. Yeah, I mean, just looking through Chicago again, like, again, yeah. a, a, you know, a <laughs> another, another. Uh, pretty diverse we'll keep using that code word <laughs> there's not again there's like nothing really uh -huh. for that audience why are you looking at chicago crazy. violet i want to hear about iwin film going habits. i know i would have loved well no that's the bummer i would have loved to have done cedar rapids but unfortunately um the the issue is in the july august issue is in production and we only had so much intern labor to go around <laughs> to produce these listings so what if I'm, it was just like incredible I like, can assure you it was not. Oh, Azard Balthazar and like the downtown <laughs> movie palace. <laughs> well, Cedar Rapids. Well, this it is was huge in Cedar Rapids. <laughs> we started, like, hold over for 12 weeks. <laughs> no, no uh, well, no, because uh, Cedar Rapids immortalized in the film Cedar Rapids. But, <laughs> um, it's sort of it's sort of strange because there you know it is a city that does have an opera house that used to, that was formerly sort of like one of those big silent movie palaces i believe at that time it was closed and i really would not assume that there were any sort of if there was a, a dearth of art house stuff it was even it was it was almost certainly even more tamped down well you know before 1966 was over i had been relocated from New York to Binghamton, ah uh, yes, which is, I can assure you, is you know, is at, at least then was as, as filmically backward as probably as any <laughs> place in 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 America. I, I'm when I'm thinking now of what I went to see there. I mean, I was very grateful for the existence of spaghetti westerns. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean that's and westerns in general. Mm -hmm. I mean that's what they seem to uh, to specialize. You know, although Point Blank. Was a was a popular film. 
came back several times. It's interesting because it's like, again, I, I mean, and I think you see this uh, contradiction uh, around the country even to this day where it's like, it's a small town, but it's also a college town. Mm-hmm. And so there really wasn't like, a, like there wasn't like sort of a student union where you could see stuff or... Well, there was a film society. Yeah, of course, there was a, there was there was stuff on campus, but you know, I mean, it was one wanted to go to the movies, you know, like, <laughs> right? Yeah, to actually, so, yeah, 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 not on the yeah. designated time, yeah, yeah. only this time, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Before we close, in the spirit of last ten films, can we go around quickly and name one film that we saw recently that we liked? Well, last night I watched uh, the Private Affairs of Bellamy. Uh, now, now out on a Blu-ray uh, after long being absent in any kind of quality transfer uh, with George Sanders at his most arrogant oh. and utterly shitty. Exquisite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dripping with venom throughout. And I was greatly, greatly impressed with it. I think it doesn't have a terribly high reputation maybe in part because uh director albert lewin albert lewin yeah yeah, is generally kind of given short shrift by the tourist crowd because of his europhiliac uh arty farty pretensions but i've enjoyed everything that (laughs) i've seen of his and this in particular i mean it's really full of some quite bracing scenes of just sexual abjection (laughs) 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 which are strange for 1947 would be strange in a sort of big studio release today uh so that that i suppose is what i'll throw my head in the ring for excellent uh, I saw Kamikaze 1989 yes. uh, the other day, so that was I you know I had to to put my is uh, my Fassbinder completism is getting mm-hmm. closer to to being complete. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was fun to go and see. The kids at the cafe earlier, I heard them. They were like, "Yeah, I'm going to see a film. It's like a really like '80s, a really cool clothes. I think it's gonna." Yeah, I was just like, "Oh, <laughs> am I allowed to go to this movie?" But yeah, so that was it. Was fun to get to see that. You'll have to become a Wolf Grimm completist now. Yeah, that, <laughs> that, yeah. Now that's yeah. That that would be an interesting. Well, I met, I met him because he was here for the Fassbender Film Society retro. Ah, mm-hmm. And he, because he directed um, the documentary about him. And he oh. actually, Fassbender actually died in his apartment. I didn't realize yes, that. He was, oh. sta- he was a house guest and he died in his apartment. Wow. Um, and he told me about how he like hid the cocaine. So it just seemed like, oh yeah, he like had a heart attack Back, or whatever. Yeah. Like he wasn't, but it was, and it was really fascinating and kind of touching to hear him talk about mm-hmm. his career. And like, he gave me this, this book he had made of all of his films. And he was just such a very genuine and very nice person. And it was so fascinating to meet him. And then uh, he had, he had been having like struggling with cancer and then he passed away last year and it was very sad, but I am actually, I'm actually interested to become a Wolfgram completist. After, now, now, now after you're meeting convinced, him, yeah, you have, you've convinced me too. Yeah. Mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he also, and then also he had this crazy story where he like, it was going to be like his big Hollywood movie, and then nine eleven happened, and it, and it was a casualty of that, and then it's just a very strange career. But hmm. anyway, Jim. <laughs> well, if we can talk about DVDs, yes, that, that um, uh, I also have the uh, that one. It's on my it's on my pile. So um, I'm glad to have your recommendation. But the most uh, interesting one I saw in the last week was this uh, German movie from 1934 called Gold. And not an auteur film. I mean, it has uh, Hans Albers, I think, is the, is the story. Anyway, it's like, it's like a, a crazy imitation of Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Same set design, although not as quite as grandiose, in which these uh, German um, scientists, and it was released you know, into the Nazi period, although it was started before. These German scientists uh, discover how to convert lead into gold, but the, but the process is stolen by like this evil British capitalist and so, <laughs> who blows up their laboratory, but then the hero goes to uh, Scotland or wherever it is and infiltrates 
the, uh, the, the laboratory, but and first shows them how to do it, how to make synthetic gold, which then wrecks the, is starting to wreck the world economy. So the German hero, you know, blows that, you know, uh, plant up. Also, I could not parse the politics of this, but what's great is that... Is that Anti-inflation. In the early 50s, the, the big scenes of blowing up the atomic uh, reactor that's manufacturing the, the, the gold turn up in this Kurt Siadmak movie, uh, Magnetic Monster. And they're just as great in this movie, which is, you know, has this other lunatic story about this new metal that's expanding, that there's this isotope that's doubling in size every two hours, you know, and it's, it's like an element that's a monster. And um, uh, anyway, I like it because Siadmak had actually worked with this director back in uh, Germany. It's nice that he that stole this what, what thing. The magnetic monster. Oh, and what and what was the gold? Gold. Yeah. Oh, okay. Gold. <laughs> yeah. All right, and then I actually—it's been a very hairy week, but I saw all of Decker versus Dracula. Oh. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> which uh, features no one does bad acting like Tim Heidecker, and I'm very glad that he does bad acting very well. And then also Greg Turkington, always great. Um, and I and I always ascribe to—I always think back to that. Very wonderful. Uh, I just really resent the way that Tim has been treating Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to kind of come out and say that. But the, I love, but I love, um, I love this in particular because it's just such a great, a great read on how most movies are made now. Because it's just everything is green screen and just the camera movements around are just so blatantly fake. And there's just such little attempt at making any part of anything else interact with anything and it's like i mean i saw i also i also saw the bfg recently and that is a film that very much suffers from like this is clearly fake and we're not even going to try and blend these things together like it's just you know it's such a lazy uh, or not lazy but just a heartless way to approach filmmaking i think <laughs> so it was very nice to see somebody else uh, sort of take aim at that but thank you all for coming this was wonderful You're thank welcome. you thank Thanks. you <laughs> You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.